Hey everyone, welcome back to Crime Sash. I'm your host, Leah, and thank you guys so much for tuning in for episode two. I'm so excited. This took a little bit longer to get out than I wanted it to. I did, a, there was a lot of research with this case that I didn't realize. I had to re-record it because the first time I recorded it, I said, um, about every five seconds, and I was not going to make you guys suffer through that because I listened to it back and I could barely, like, push myself to listen to it, and it was, I'm listening to myself talk. But anyways, I do have a few updates. First, I want to thank you guys so, so much for the positive feedback on the first episode. I have about 62 downloads, and that's just in downloads. I have about 62 downloads in three countries, and that is just huge to me for my first podcast episode to have done 62 downloads. That is just insane. I know it's not a big number, but to me, that is everything. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for the positive feedback. Thank you for the reviews you were leaving and the feedback you were just giving me personally. I really appreciate it. It means the world to me. An update, I did add a request form in my link tree. So if you want to go over to our Instagram at Pod, there is a Google request form that you can request conspiracy theories, missing people cases, unsolved cases, solved cases, all that goodness. It's the first link on the link tree, I believe. And going off of that, please let me know if you guys do want conspiracy theory episodes. I know that that is in the, like, podcast notes in our bio that it is also going to be conspiracy theories. But I've been talking to my brother and everything about, like, I'm afraid to do a conspiracy theory episode because I know that it is called Crime Sesh, so it's, like, based around only crime. If you guys want conspiracy theories, please let me know. I'm a, I am love conspiracy theories. I love talking about them. So please let me know if that's something y'all would be interested in. Enough of me rambling. Let's get on to today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Also, I'm really sorry it took me so long to get this episode out. I really wanted to post it a week after the first episode, but this had a lot of research with it, a lot more than I anticipated to have. I have like six pages of just research for this case, and also I'm having to re-record it because the one I recorded the other night was just not it. It was not it. I'm really sorry if I say, um, I'm gonna refrain from not saying it. I do not say it in like typical day-to-day life but for some reason when I record it's like the only word I can think of but with that being said let's jump right into this week's episode this week's episode is on the 1946 phantom killer murders or also called the town that dreaded sundown or the Texarkana moonlight murders it goes by many different names but here's a little background on the town Texarkana is a city in Bowie County, Texas, and it is a twin city with Arkansas. It is about 29 square miles, and in 2020, the population was around 36,000, but at the time of these attacks, it was around 18,000, so it was like a fairly, I want to say it was a fairly small town. I feel like 18,000 is kind of small, but it's also a kind of a lot for a town, but it's kind of in the middle. So to kick off these attacks, it started a week after Valentine's Day on Sunday, February 22, 1946. 19-year-old Mary Luray, a petite brunette, and 25-year-old Jimmy Hollis, who was an insurance agent, were dating, and it was said that they were both in the progress of divorcing other people. This couple, they decided to go downtown to see a movie, and on their way home, they decided to stop on a secluded road that was known as Lover's Lane. The area that Lover's Lane was located in was said to be 300 feet away from the last row of homes in the city. 
Around 11.45 to midnight, a white male around six foot tall with what looked like a pillowcase on his head and he had eye holes cut out where his eyes should be, walked up to Jimmy's driver's side window and he held a flashlight up to the window. Jimmy truly thought that this guy either had the wrong car or he was playing a prank. So he rolled down his window and he was just like, hey, like I think you have the wrong car. And following that, some reports say that the hooded man pulled out of a pulled out a gun and ordered both of them to get out of the car through the driver's side window. There were some or not not the driver's side window, the driver's side door. There were some reports that I found that said he had a flashlight or he had a pistol. So it was either or or maybe he had both, but I found in different articles they and said like, that he either had a gun or a flashlight. The hooded man told Jimmy, I don't want to kill you, so do what I say. The man then ordered Jimmy to take off his pants, and after Jimmy did, he hit Jimmy in the head so hard with either his flashlight or his pistol that Mary thought he had just shot Jimmy in the head, but it was actually the sound of Jimmy's skull fracturing. Mary thought the man just wanted to rob them, so she found Jimmy's wallet and ended up showing to the, like, showing the man that he didn't have any money like they didn't have any money to give him so robbing them was pretty much useless and she was hoping that she could just plead with him and he would leave them alone the man then also hit mary with a blunt object and the man told mary to stand up and run so mary did as she was told and she ran until she reached a parked car on the side of the road and that's when the mysterious hooded man caught up with her and he then questioned mary why are you running and when she answered him back and said because you told me to I was just doing what I was told he proceeded to call her a liar and then he sexually assaulted her Mary managed to thankfully escape the attacker and she ran about a half mile until she found a house and she ran inside and called 911 and it's also said that I saw um, in a couple articles that Jimmy somehow flagged down a vehicle and caught their attention and that vehicle owner also called the police Sheriff Bill Presley and three other officers responded to the scene. They tried interviewing Jimmy and Mary, but Jimmy could barely keep consciousness. Obviously, he just got his head beaten. Literally, Mary thought that he had been shot. Like, that's how hard his head was bashed in. So, I don't even know why the cops thought it was going to be a good idea to try to interview him anyways after he was just, like, he got the shit beat out of him. But anyways, so Sheriff Presley had sent them to Texarkana Hospital for treatment and While they were there, the officers continued to investigate the crime scene, but they only ended up finding Jimmy's pants. Mary had a minor head wound, and Jimmy had to have emergency surgery due to the severe injury to his skull. Mary tried speaking to the police and telling them what she knew, but she was very shaken up and very scared, which is completely understandable. She just listened to Jimmy get the shit beat out of him, and she was also also sexually assaulted, and it's very just traumatizing. Jimmy was in a coma for 15 15 days and then Mary and Jimmy both gave reports of what they they believe the attacker looked like. They both did agree that the man was six foot tall that attacked them but Jimmy believed the suspect was white and in his 30s while Mary believed that he was actually an African-American male. The local newspaper which was called the Texarkana Gazette released a story on the attack the following day. They did wasted no time putting this story out. They were like we gotta get this out let everybody know right this minute. The sheriff initially thought that it was Mary's soon-to-be ex-husband who carried out these attacks. Obviously, you may, maybe he's upset about the divorce, but he actually had a really tight alibi that placed him nowhere near the attack that night. They also thought that maybe the couple knew who attacked them, but they didn't want to identify them, which I'm not sure why the police totally thought that, but that was a big thing that the they really did think that Mary and Jimmy knew their attacker, but for some reason they just didn't want to say who it was. 
Days after the attack, the sheriff didn't want to make the racial divide even bigger because at the time in Texarkana, the racial divide was pretty large. And he didn't want to hurt the already fragile town. So with Mary believing the suspect was an African-American male, the sheriffs believed that the attack was probably just a part of normal criminal activity in Texarkana. So at the time, they weren't in that big of a hurry to find a suspect. Sunday, March 24th, 1946, between 8 and 9 a.m., a father and son discovered the bodies of 29-year-old Richard L. Griffin and his girlfriend's 17-year-old Polly Ann Moore in Griffin's car, also on a lover's lane named Rich Road, close to the bar called Club Dallas, about 100 yards away from U.S. Highway 67 West. The man and his son first thought that they were just asleep because that's the way it looked from looking inside the car. But Richard was actually found in between the front seats on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out. He had been shot two times, one with him being shot in the back of the head, and Polly was found sprawled face down in the back seat. And they um, believe that Polly was actually killed outside of the vehicle first and then she was placed in the back seat. They found blood that was pulled all over the running boards on the car where it had poured out from underneath the door. It was believed that the killer used a .32 Colt model pistol because they did find a cartridge shell for one at the crime scene. Following that, Sunday, April 14, 1946, around 1.30 a.m., 17-year-old Paul Martin picked up 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker, who played the saxophone for her high school. She was at a musical performance at the VFW Club at West 4th and Oak Street. Their bodies were found three miles from Paul's Ford Coupe that was parked outside Spring Lake Park with the keys still in it. Paul's body was found around 6.30 a.m. and he was lying on his left side by the northern edge of North Park Road. Paul had been shot four times, once through the nose, once through his ribs, once through his right hand, and once through the back of his neck. Betty was not found until five hours later around 11.30 a.m. and she was lying behind a tree with her clothes on and her right hand inside her pocket. Betty had been shot twice, once through her chest and once in the face, and the weapon that was used was believed to be the same weapon from the murder of Richard and Polly. Sheriff Presley and Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez, I hope I'm not pronouncing his last name wrong, I'm sure I am, but I am sorry, (laughs) they said that Paul and Betty both had a terrific struggle. Betty's mom, Bessie, woke up on that morning of the 14th with a motherly intuition, like a gut feeling that something was not right and she realized that Betty had never made it home that night from her concert and her saxophone was not home so obviously Betty hadn't made it home yet. She asked her husband Clark Brown which was Betty's stepfather to start making phone calls. He called Betty's really good friend Janan Gleason who Betty was actually supposed to be staying the night with that night but Janan said Betty never made it to her house. This murder made Sheriff Presley submit a request for the FBI to join in on this investigation to help process the crime scene. While they were processing the crime scene, word spread like wildfire, like it usually does in small towns. It spreads really, really fast. And that is when they realized that Paul Martin was the last person seen with Betty. And it is said that they found Betty's saxophone six months later, closer to where her body was found. Now, I said... Like I said earlier, that Betty's body was not found until five hours later, around 11.30 in the morning... All of that with her mom waking up and her stepfather calling her friend, all of that happened before Betty's body was found. So that happened between Paul's body being found and Betty's body being found. And that's why it says that they then realized that Paul Martin was the last one seen with her. So they had found Paul Martin's body and then Betty's mom had woken up, realized she wasn't home. They called 
And then when no one could figure out where she was, people found out that, oh, she was last seen with Paul. So they went back to where Paul was found to see if they could find Betty. And unfortunately, they did find Betty's deceased body. Now, the thing about her saxophone, keep that in mind. Like I said, it was found six months later. I'm about to bring that back up again here in just a second. The newspaper then gave the mysterious killer the name The Phantom Killer, and that is where that came from. Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez pleaded to the town of Texarkana that he would stay until he put the Phantom Killer in jail or he killed him himself. Gonzalez was known to engage in physical confrontations where he was credited with what he calls justified killings of 75 outlaws. He also let the public know they were looking for this phantom killer and that Betty's saxophone was missing and to be on the lookout for someone selling or pawning a saxophone with the serial number 2535AE, but this was before they found her saxophone near the crime scene. The killings of Paul and Betty sent Texarkana into a huge spiral. Everyone started going crazy. The hardware stores were selling out of guns, ammo, deadbolts, and screen door braces. And teens began to travel in groups armed with pistols, and there was a curfew for all of the residents of Texarkana. Following the attack of Paul and Betty on Sunday, May 3rd, 1946, the hooded man committed his final murder. Around 9 p.m., 37-year-old Virgil Starks, a farmer and a welder, and his wife, 36-year-old Katie, were attacked in their house. They lived on a 500-acre farm off of Highway 67 East, about 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. Virgil was sitting in an armchair reading the newspaper when he was shot twice in the back of his head from a closed window. Katie, his wife, heard the commotion. She heard the glass breaking, so she went to go check it out, and when she came in to see what all the noise was about, that's when she saw her husband, Virgil, stand up and slump back into his chair. Katie was then also shot twice, and it is said that she was actually shot in the face by one of these shots. She was shot from the same window that Virgil was, and while Katie was trying to get in contact with the police, she was trying to find their pistol in another bedroom, but she couldn't see through all of her blood since she had been shot in the face. She heard the killer towards the back of her house, so she ran out the front door and escaped. She ran across the street barefoot to what is said to be her sister and her brother-in-law's house, but they were not home, so she ran to another neighbor's house, and her neighbor rushed her to Michael Meager Hospital, which is now known as the Miller County Health Facility. Mrs. Starks did survive, and then she was questioned about that night's events. The police found a flashlight underneath the window that Mr. Stark was shot from that had fingerprints on it, and the weapon used in this attack was believed to be a 22 caliber automatic rifle, but without a motive, the police believed it was also the Phantom Killer. There was a rumor that Virgil had heard a car outside their home for several nights and had a fear that he was going to be killed, but Mrs. Stark denied all of these rumors and these accusations. In response to the deaths of Griffin and Moore, the police launched a citywide investigation involving the Texas and Arkansas City Police, the Texas Department of Public Safety, Miller and Cass County Sheriffs, and the FBI. They questioned well over 200 people, but most seemed to lead them to nothing, just a bunch of false leads. They did find three people who had bloody clothing, and they were taken into custody, but they were actually all cleared soon after. In the response of Paul Martin and Betty Booker, their friends and acquaintances and suspects were questioned, and Captain Gonzalez tried to lure the phantom killer out by having teens sit in parked cars while officers stood by, but of course, nothing ever came of it. On March 30th, there was a $500 reward that they put out to hopefully help them gain some new information about the case, but this actually just ended up making a bunch of people call in with false leads and after this um paul i'm sorry guys there's a plane flying over right now i live near an airport so i'm sorry if you can hear it in the background 
But after the Paul Martin and Betty Booker murders, the reward had actually went up to $1,700. It then went up to $7,025 the night Mr. and Mrs. Stark were attacked, and then it ended up passing $10,000 about 10 days later. These events have been mentioned in the media with the 1976 movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, the 2014 meta-sequel, in the 2012 movie, Seven Psychopaths, and in the 2018 Murder in the Moonlight movie. Getting on to some suspects, throughout this case, almost 400 suspects were arrested and multiple people did end up confessing to the murders, but their statements never lined up with the facts and the evidence that the police had acquired. Uel Sweeney, I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name wrong, I really don't care because he is the prime suspect in this case, so I could care less about his feelings or how he pronounces his name, but he was the prime suspect in this case. Sweeney was a 29-year-old car thief and counterfeiter. Sweeney and his wife, Peggy, were actually arrested in either June or July. Peggy confessed in detail that her husband was the phantom killer and he had killed Paul and Betty. Her story changed every time she spoke to the police, though, and they felt that she was leaving out a lot of information so she wouldn't incriminate herself. Peggy and Sweeney's family, act, like his, his whole family actually believed that he was the phantom killer and they were all pretty set on it. In Sweeney's room, they found a khaki shirt that had the name Stark on it and in the front pocket was slag, which is a non-metallic byproduct of various welding processes, which did match the samples from Virgil Stark's house because he had a welding shop. Like I said, he was a farmer and a welder. He also owned a 32 Colt, and when he was being accused of the murder, Sweeney just sat in silence instead of trying to fight for his innocence. Sweeney's fingerprints did not match the prints at the crime scene where Betty and Paul were found, and Peggy then recanted her confession about Sweeney, and Texas Rangers and Sheriff Presley were actually not convinced at all that he was even the phantom killer. In 1999 and in 2000, an anonymous woman contacted the family members of the victims and apologized for what her father had done, but Sweeney was not known to have had a daughter but this could have just been some random woman that wanted some attention. Like, I get maybe not attention because she didn't, like, give her identity. But this could have just been somebody that just wanted to, like, I don't know, some like, submerge themselves into this case. Because there's those weird people. There's always the weird people that want to put themselves in the middle of a very big case or a very big investigation when they have nothing to do with it. Like that um, 14-year-old kid that died on that um, amusement park ride in Florida just a couple weeks ago. There was a random lady that started talking to the press that claimed he was his her cousin. He was his cousin, and the fourteen year old boy's mom came out and said that they don't even know who this woman is, but she just wanted attention and to submerge herself into it and get some sympathy. Besides the point, like I said, he was never known to have a, had a daughter, so that is also another factor of why they believe he was not the phantom killer. H.B. Doodle Tenson was an 18-year-old university student who committed suicide on November 4th, 1948, and he left behind a suicide note where he confessed to killing Betty, Paul, and Virgil. He played trombone in the same high school band as Betty Booker, but investigators could find no evidence to link him to the murders, and his friend James Freeman actually came forward with an alibi, saying that he was with him playing cards, which also, I mean, I guess he could have been, but Betty, Paul, and Virgil were all killed on different days. So unless they were just like coincidentally playing cards all on those exact same days, I guess he could have been covered with an alibi. But his brother also came out saying that he didn't even know how to use weapons and he had only just learned how to drive in 1947. So realistically, he didn't even know how to work a gun. 
but I also believe that this is kind of hard to believe because if I'm following the timeline right, he would have only been 16 years old when these crimes happened because in 1948, when he killed himself, he was 18 years old and when these murders happened, he would have been 16. So I find it hard to believe that this 16-year-old could have carried out all of these murders against these grown men, but I guess it can definitely happen. So we can't really rule him out. Another suspect is Ralph B. Bunham. He was a 21-year-old ex-Army Air Force machine gunner, and he apparently heard about this suspect that apparently matched his description. So he hitchhiked to Los Angeles, and on March 20 or on May 23rd, Ralph called the police and told them he might be the phantom killer. Police did arrest him, but Captain Gonzalez said that the man's story had very little basis, and it didn't match the facts or the evidence. So, like I said, this case is still unsolved. It'll probably always be unsolved since this did happen back in the 40s, and now it is 2022, and we still have nothing. My heart goes out to all of the victims' families, obviously, because I just can't imagine how it would feel that your 15-year-old daughter left to go play in a musical performance and then she never made it home. Yeah, I don't think I'd be able to go through that. And my heart, like I said, just goes out to all the victims. That is all I have on this case. Anyways, like always, stay safe out there. Don't go down any lover's lanes. And I will see you guys next time on the next episode. Follow us on Instagram at Pod.